listening to this later, they were not privy to the uh, example of the illustration I used in, uh, in the primer, which was about, um, you know, this, this, uh, this list of side effects that possibly potentially would come with a medication that's offered to you. And of course, there's a lot of bad news with side effects. There's a lot of things that, you know, you're not going to generally sign up for as something you want. But um, the, uh, the thing that, that actually moves us to accept, accept the, the thing that we maybe are not initially drawn towards is the reality that's behind that. So if you're facing some uh, sickness, some illness, some kind of circumstance that requires you to, to uh, accept the, the truth of that so that you can take what is given to you in, in a way that um, doesn't reject uh, what's true, but also uh, is part of the bad news becoming becoming the good news. Because sometimes the good news is not just um, you know cotton candy, just all substance and fluff and sugar and and, and uh, or did I say all substance? No substance in cotton candy. Do not go home and eat two plates full of cotton candy and uh, think that you've uh, achieved the uh, pyramid. But that's another thing. Okay. Uh, so anyway, let me let me walk through the scripture this morning. I want to pick up. Um, just jumping around real quick, that um, there's been this amazing miracle, and then the, the scene moves from um, somewhere outside the temple or just in the outer court of the temple to inside the temple proper. And that um, that's a really important detail because what's what's happening here in the book of Acts altogether is a transition from the old way, the old covenant, where God's presence, God's name, is, is where you commune with Him, where you find. Uh, forgiveness, where you, where you find relationship, was one place, right? It was in the temple, and it was through the uh, economy of the law, the Mosaic law. That's, that's now been um, fulfilled, put aside, and the death, and cruci uh, crucifixion, and then resurrection, now ascension of Christ. And there's a transition period that, that overlaps here, and so everybody doesn't get it day one that we're not doing that anymore. And so there's, there's like a gradual changeover, piece by piece, of well, the temple thing is not necessarily in the temple proper now. Now it's it's just in the power of faith in the name of Christ, not not also in the holy of holies, and not also through the law, and not also through the sacrifices. So, lest I preach uh, all Hebrews to you this morning, let's uh, look at the scripture together. So, so keep in mind that uh, this is a, a transitionary step. It's, it, it's moving the people's thoughts from um, the temple as the place where God is to to something else. That the Messiah is. The, the, the fulfillment of, of all that they expected to only be presence uh, or what they had known so far in the temple. So um, here we are, verse 11 of chapter 3. It says, While he, that's the man that's been healed, uh, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, excuse me, all the people, utterly astounded, uh, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And uh, I apologize. Shirley, would you jump back there? My slides aren't going. Um, so, uh, here's the thing, um, de dependence or independence is not always necessarily a, a function of ability. So, uh, what, what happened last week is we saw the man who had been um, healed for, after 40 years, he, he'd never been able to walk, he'd never been able to do anything with his legs, his legs are restored to him, and all of a sudden we find out he's leaping and jumping, he's doing all these crazy things uh, that we would not think that somebody that's never walked before could do, right? So it's clearly not a problem of him being incapable of walking. Do you see that at least? Okay, so he, he's capable of doing a lot of things, but it says here that he's he's clinging to Peter and John. That's like, um, 
The, the detail that we would just kind of gloss over, except for the fact that it uses this word for, for clinging that means like to seize. It's the same word that's like when they see when they arrest Jesus, they seize him. And also it's the same word that uh, once Jesus is ascend, or excuse me, he's, he's resurrected, and uh, it says that uh, Mary is, is clinging to his feet, and he says, don't, don't cleave to me, don't hang on to me, I have not yet gone to the Father, okay? So this is a, a, a very particular word. It's it's meant to convey something important, and so I want you to see that it's not necessarily about the man's inability to walk. He's doing something important. He's attaching himself to the, to the people to which now that he is somewhat dependent on, and also belongs with and to. Okay, so um, let me let me use that to contrast for you what could have happened. He could have just walked into the temple by himself and praised and leaped and done all these things, and everyone's, oh wow, how great is that? This man got healed out of the temple. And, uh, <laughs> No, not attaching it to anything in particular, but because he's hanging on to Peter and John at this moment, as he goes in and he's cleaving to them, this is like, he sees them. He will not let them be, okay? If you want to say it like that. He's attaching what has happened to him to, to Peter and John. And at this moment, Peter and John represent like some, some important things. Um, primarily, they represent the church. So here, here's what you need to kind of see in this picture is that... Um, you, nobody is uh, saved as an individual mercenary of Jesus, okay? You, you, are, you are an independent human being, but you're not independent of the people of God, okay? And so the, the man that's now been healed, who, who's uh, been given uh, faith in the, in the name of Christ, he's, he's attached himself now to see the picture to the church. He's clinging to the church. And he doesn't necessarily, it's not because he's incapable of understanding it, it's because they, they alone now have the words and the stewardship of what is true. They have all the words that Jesus gave them, and that's what they're in charge of disseminating. And he said, you, the apostles, are going to be my witnesses. And so it's important that this man is attached to them. And so this goes back now to the importance of the temple transition language. This is the picture that's being drawn so that the people now attach the miracle that's done to these two uh, apostles who are representing uh, the, the church now, the ecclesia, the people that are called by God's name, but now importantly, with the defining aspect of it being Jesus' name. So... Um, they, they, uh, they, they go in, uh, they're clinging to him, and this presents the opportunity that we see for, uh, for, for Peter and John. So, so Peter uh, sees that uh, they, all, they all run together to them in a portico called Solomon's. It doesn't really matter that it's, that where it is, but I think it is interesting that Solomon is known as not just a really rich king, but also a very what? Wise king. And now these two apostles are about to expound the words of, of God and do so on what is called Solomon's, Solomon's porch, if you have that translation. Uh, just a little note for you. So, uh, and then verse 12. It says, Now when Peter saw it, it, the fact that they had drawn this crowd, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our power or our piety that we have made this man well. So, um, here, here's uh, something important you need to realize. This, this man uh, was, was lame, and everybody knows that of him. And um, at, at this moment, something is clearly different about him. Everybody kind of recognizes it because he's not the same guy that they've always known. So, it's, it's the contrast from what was to what is now that is actually drawing the crowd. Okay? So, that's, that's what's important in this. And, um, in general, um, what's, what's about to happen when Peter recognizes the situation is a, a, courts, a court proceeding, if you want to think about it that way, is about to happen. This, uh, Peter's going to put into uh, contrast uh, authorities, 
And witnesses, that, that word is going to come up a lot. Witness, witness, witness. What is the witness for and who's the witness about what? And so uh, the first thing that, that we should recognize about uh, any presentation of, of what's true is the, be the best witness against us is not what I say about you, but what you are. So the best witness against you is you. Can I say it that way? The best witness against you is you. So regardless of what this man thinks about himself at this moment, he can't really proclaim anything other than what he's always been. I've always been a lame man at the temple gates, but now I'm not. Okay? And, and so um, our own life, our own actions bear out a truth about us. Regardless of what you want to declare or want to believe or want to say about yourself, your own actions bear out whether or not that's true. How many of you guys say that I am a lawbreaker? Interesting. How many of you guys regularly drive over the speed limit? <laughs> so it does not matter what you say about yourself. It matters what your life actually bears out. And, um, and why is it that we don't often get caught for driving over the speed limit? Well, maybe you don't feel like that's that great infraction. I only go four over, and that's always a thing, right? Or something similar like that. But the truth is, that, like, by the letter of the law, you've broken the law, and uh, before I go way, way far in the weeds, the point is this, because somebody's not always sitting there in your car that's going to take you to court afterward and witness what? Against you. Okay? They're not going to go in and drag you in and testify against you that you were always driving over the speed limit. And then, in which case, you have to admit that it's true, and, and then uh, some of the consequences. So here, here's um, what, what Peter's going to do in this message. He's going to present witnesses against the people, against the, against the people, but also um, drawn out by the, the example of this beggar and, and who he was. And so he's using this, this object lesson, if you will, of the, the person that everybody recognized who he was, but now he's not who he was. So because everybody recognizes, oh yeah, that's, that's the lame guy, that's the lawbreaker, that's the, okay? That, that being true, that, that first important thing that we need to recognize is about uh, ourselves is that we, we often witness against ourselves. And so I was doing some research uh, for this message, as I usually do, and uh, I was... Uh, I was on some theological message board, and I come across this. Uh, I come across this posting, and uh, it's a, it's a quote. Surely, if you can put that up. So, uh, no, it's a longer one. Sorry, it says quote. Um, sorry, I wish that we had working remote here. I'll read it to you. Uh, it's it's somewhat lengthy. So this person says this. Talking about the man that's, that's been healed, and there's some dialogue going on on this message board about this particular man. And so she says, cripples is a very degrading term. I don't know how disabilities were treated at the time of the temple, but I do know that if a priest had a disability, it might impact his ability to serve, which is true. But here's something that we were told over and over again as kids. I should enlighten you that this person is uh, a Jew. Uh, and so uh, we were told this as kids. The rules of the temple no longer apply today. And we are no longer, we no longer stone people, we no longer slaughter animals. So maybe we can no longer use terms that make people feel uh, written off entirely because of a physical handicap. And uh, so maybe that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to you, that kind of statement. But here's what's behind this, this statement. It is ignoring what is plainly true to everyone else for the sake of not making somebody feel bad. Okay? So, so what's behind the statement is why do we have to say that this person is actually lame? And uh, why, why is it, you know, that we have to single somebody out and say, well, you know, they can't serve in the temple. So 
the question that's behind this is like, well, what kind of person is, it, is, is the evil person that's motivated to point out bad things about people? So I, I, that got me thinking, well, what kind of person is the kind of person who points out bad things about people? So let me give you a couple reasons why somebody might do it. Because somebody might be positively or negatively motivated to do that. So the first reason why somebody might point out something that's negative about you is because they care about you. They might see something problematic in your life, or they might see something that, that's going wrong, and they see that that's destined for some greater catastrophe, and want to point that out out of love. Like, it could be positively motivated in that way. So someone that knows either through expertise or experience that the thing that you're experiencing or what they're seeing in your life is problematic. Right? Like, zoom, okay, doctor. A doctor reading a, a chart, uh, you know, an x-ray or an MRI or something and sees a bunch of masses. Well, through expertise and experiences, they know that that's problematic. They need to um, identify for you the, the problem that, that they're seeing. And they're not doing it because they hate you. They're doing it because they're trying to warn you about what's, what's to come. Okay? And so pointing that out is not a bad thing. It's not poorly motivated. And to call you somebody with cancer would not be a derogatory term at that point. Are you seeing that? Okay? So um, it can also be somebody that's just trying to change the focus. Like they're, you know, maybe the tension somewhere and, it's, and they want to put it somewhere else. And so they point out something, well, that person's, you know, like that. Or they're being that way. And that's maybe more of a, a negative motivation. Or somebody who's being outright cruel to point out something. But that's not the case in this particular instance, it's just a, a fact of life that this man can't walk. Now, whether or not it's about terminology, we could, we could discuss that, being cruel for no particular reason is, uh, is obviously not the point, but it got me thinking about the reality of accepting, accepting our, our true nature, like who we really are. And uh, how many of you guys ever saw the movie, What About Bob? <laughs> so sad for your So Bob uh, is, uh, he's afraid of everything. He's got phobias of everything. And he's played by Bill Murray. So if you enjoy the comedy of Bill Murray, it's perfect. So um, can you throw up this first, this first picture? So Bob's afraid of everything. He gets invited to go sailing. And here we are. Cameron pins in. Here he is. He's declaring, I'm sailing. You're thinking, how does Bob go sailing? Because Bob's afraid of everything, right? And I'm sailing. We see this. And the camera packs out. And he says, look. I'm sailing, and if you can't see the picture, he's literally tied to the mast with two, two life vests on. Is he not? Okay? And then one more, and then finally he goes, I'm a sailor. I sail. Okay? But the truth is, is Bob's sailing. No, Bob, Bob's been kidnapped and, and tied to a mast with two, two uh, well, I mean, I guess in the most technical sense, he, he's sailing, but you get the point that he's declaring something that absolutely isn't, isn't true um, in, in, in the sense that we understand it. So we can get caught up in the problem of um, trying to ignore a reality that um, it's clearly testified in, in our lives, and, and that's um, problematic for anybody being being able to accept a, a remedy or a cure for, for what is actually going on. So imagine that the lame man actually had you no know, awareness of uh, you know he, he's like you know I. I I'm happy with the way that I am. Or maybe his friends and family, just in ways to encourage him, just be like, hey, you know what? You, you're just as good as everybody else. And, uh, you know, every day while they carry him to the temple, um, they just go, hey, look, you're doing it, man. You're walking. The only thing, you're just not using your legs, right? And so you see that we're, we're like, the problem of trying to be nice in favor of saying what's true can be detrimental. It can be catastrophic. And um, 
That's not what's happening here. And it's important that we realize that when we present anything that we, we hold to be true from the Scripture, that um, you say what is true in, in grace and truth. It says that Jesus came to be grace and truth. Okay? And sometimes we err too far on truth and too far on grace. And Jesus was all the way full of both in how he said things. So you're saying things that are absolutely true, but you're doing it in grace. And um, so it's not, it's not wrong to identify like, hey, you, you really need help. You, you absolutely need something here. And um, just, just glossing over that would, would, not, uh, would not be beneficial. So um, the witness uh, of, of what, um, so, so we have our, the, the best witness against us is often ourselves. But we also have um, the, the witness to the power of the gospel, which is the man was one way and now he's, he's another way. Um, so importantly this, don't, ex don't, exchange, don't exchange the reality of what the gospel is for the results of what the gospel does. Mm. So this is an important distinction because we can get caught up in the idea that a gospel, a gospel, uh, the gospel is a changed life. No, the gospel results in a changed life, but it is not just about changing your life. It is not just about improving your life. It is not just about, okay? And so when, when, we, when we miss that, or if that sounds very anti-religious you know, to you, it is very anti-religious, but it's very pro-gospel. It's anti the religion of, I need a better life, I need to see some other change, and forsaking it, putting that as the substance of the gospel, and that is not emphatically not what the gospel is. We have to keep uh, what is sacred and clear, uh, very clear. Don't, don't cloud the gospel up. Uh, a changed life gives evidence of faith. It gives evidence of God's mercy and grace, but we do not preach changed lives. We preach dead people given life. Okay? And here's, 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 what, the, here's what missing that does. It places um, something far less, something token, and, and something that we chase, and it, and, it, and it misses the gospel, and so we become very religious about pursuing some other lesser thing. And um, the uh, it never it never gets us to the point where we actually relinquish our our own opinions of ourselves, and we surrender totally when we when we make it about something more superficial than our our absolute inability without God. So, so the heart of the gospel is, is couched in our inability. It's, 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 it's being represented here by the man who's totally unable to do anything, given the ability to, have, to, to be able to walk and to be healed, and, um, and to do all these things that he couldn't do before. And so, um, so when, when Peter sees this, he addresses the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? And then he says a very important line that maybe is probably the best line if you want to wonder about um, healings and faith and, and really um, dig into what we were talking about last week. He says, as though by our own power or our piety that we made him walk. So when, when um, the limitation to life change as, as an exchange of the gospel um, affects churches all the time, everywhere. It's, it's given out because we, we desperately want to um, give people the benefit. We want to we hold out for them something they want. 
And people want life change. But can I tell you something? People can change their lives without Jesus. You can go on a diet. You can go into addiction recovery, right? But if that's the gospel, then it's totally about your stick to itiveness. It's your ability to be able to stick to whatever the regimen is or whatever parameters you're able to put in place to make you hold to that thing and change your life. And that's, that's emphatically not what's, what's happening here. It's, it's something that's given to you uh, regardless of your ability. And so um, if, if, if we limit it at the superficial level, um, then, the, then the gospel becomes something that we just throw out and it's something that we can take more of or less of. It's something that we can uh, maybe have all of or, or not all of. And, um, and, and uh, what Peter says here puts that away when he says, why do you look at us as though it's something that we've done either by our ability or by our religiousness? Okay? So he, he's pointing out the fact that it has nothing to do with anything that they could conjure, anything they could put together, or anything um, that they've done to merit that kind of response. It, it isn't by our power, it isn't by our piety that this thing is being accomplished. It's by faith in, in Jesus, and Peter's quick to point that out. And so the, the results or the implications of, of this should be seen in that Peter's saying, like, like, we, just, we are just um, tools in the hand of the one that actually has the power, the one that actually is making this possible. And so uh, the power of the gospel is a witness to the power of God. The power of the gospel is a witness to the power of God. And the weaker that we are, the weaker that we are and are seen to be, the more powerful God is seen in us. Okay, I'll say that again. The change of life from the gospel is a witness to the power of God. And the weaker that we are and are seen to be, that's really important, the more powerful God then is seen through us. So the more I depend on God, the more I show Him to be faithful. The, the more I give to God, the more I experience His goodness. The more I walk in faith, the more I experience His faithfulness. The weaker I am, the more of His power I get to experience and depend on. And His Spirit gives all of those things. And maturity um, in walking with God recognizes that I'm not enough for all that's required for faith. And it recognizes our inabilities. And wisdom is knowing that you don't know everything. Right? Have, have you heard that before? Okay, so a wise person knows the limitations of their wisdom. And a mature person knows the limitations of their ability. And so the, the counterintuitive thing about faith is that Right? Becoming weaker, we, we get stronger. This is all throughout what Jesus teaches, all throughout what, uh, what Paul teaches throughout the New Testament, is that we, we have more when we are less. And that, that's uh, at the heart of um, our, our ability to experience whether or not we count God faithful. And the, the reality is that we don't often give God the opportunity to prove himself faithful. Instead, we pick up our own bags and our own problems and say, well, I'll figure this out myself. And then we wonder why, why God didn't, why he wasn't faithful. It was, well, because you picked your own stuff up. You never gave him the opportunity. You see this. So um, there's, a, there's a great line in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia series where, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar, it's these, these children you know, find this, this land through a closet and a wardrobe in Narnia. And time passes differently. So anyway, they, they've, uh, they've do you guys know the story well enough that I just make a quote here, okay? So, so um, the children of age, this is in um, Prince Caspian, and uh, Lucy comes back into Narnia after 
what's been a long, a long time's past. And she notices Aslan. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, I'm not bigger than you are. And he says, um, each, each time, uh, uh, it's, not, it's because you are older, little one. Not, uh, and she asks, not because you are? And he says, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Let me say that again. Because I think that it's really important to get this. That the, the bigger that Lucy got, the more uh, mature that she became. And she's like, Aslan, you got bigger. Aslan's not bigger. He's always been big as he always was. But her capacity, her ability to recognize this has grown. He says, I'm not bigger. You just, your, your capacity to see this has, has grown. This is a picture of who God is. And you, you don't exhaust your knowledge of God. The more that you know about God, the, the more you realize you don't know very much about God. Are you seeing this? And the more grace you experience, the more mercy you experience, you realize you've only scratched the surface. You've only touched your foot into the, the ocean of who God is. So your, your ability to recognize this and, um, and experience it is, is, is difficult to, to state. And so um, our, our, uh, our job is to, to uh, become smaller and become uh, weaker so that God's power can be seen through us and in us. Okay? So, um, he, he's, he's pointing there in that, that verse, why do you stare at us? It's, it's not by our power, it's not by our piety that we made this man walk. And then, starting in verse 13, the next section is going to launch into an apologetic about the witness of who God is. So he's going to say, essentially this, God himself bore witness to who Jesus is. And, and, and you've missed it, Jews. The Jewish people, you have missed the identity of the Messiah. And so this is, this is the case he's going to begin to build. Read with me in 13. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, and you denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and the righteous one. And you asked for a murder, excuse me, a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, who God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And then he delivers that great line that we talked about last week. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. When we see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man a perfect health in the presence of you all. I want to concentrate on what happens before verse 15. Peter points to um, the authority that, that everybody recognized the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's that's Yahweh. We know who that is. We recognize that authority, and if he says anything, we must abide. This is, this is the life of what it meant to be a Jew. And so Peter goes, and he says, look, what he did was that he raised up and glorified his servant Jesus. That's what it says in 13. He's trying to point out the fact that God divinely shone a spotlight on his servant, and he's, he's using these terms that they would have recognized from Isaiah and Jeremiah about who the, who the Messiah would be, and he says, but, but as he did that, your response to it wasn't, um, wasn't right. It wasn't in kind with, with who this man is. And then um, look in uh, verse 14. He uses titles that were only given to God himself or Yahweh. And he's now making them synonymous with the one who, who they deny. So look at it in verse 14. He says, you deny the Holy One and the Righteous One. These were terms that were only given to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And now he's saying, but you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. And so now he's bringing down their gaze to the one that actually held those titles, and he was the author of life. And now he's making Jesus synonymous 
with Yahweh. And there's only one who gives life and takes away life. That's, that's God himself. It's the Lord who gives and takes away. And Jesus said this himself. I, uh, you, can I paraphrase Jesus for a second? He says, you can't kill me. Essentially this. Why? Because he's the author of life. He says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. Why? Because he is the giver of life. He's the one that decides who dies, who lives, and how long, and all those things. And he's, he's laying that out. So you killed the author of life, and, and God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So he's, he's just um, reminding them of all that's taken place. And then um, he, he says uh, in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also all your rulers. Now, if you're familiar, even at a superficial level, of the story preceding the crucifixion, it doesn't feel like anything that happened in that scenario was done in ignorance. Right? There's, there's plotting that happens beforehand. There's illegal trials that take place. There's, there's conniving. There's, there's things that take place that you would go, that doesn't seem like it was accidental, right? So what does Peter mean when he says that what they did, they did in ignorance? Well, he doesn't mean it in the way that excuses the behavior. He means it in the way you did not realize the ramifications of all that you were doing in that moment. And uh, this goes back to something he said in his first speech in Pentecost. His first sermon was about um, how how the, the whole, how everyone had gathered in the Holy City to accomplish what the Lord had already decided to do, which was to put, put to death Jesus by crucifixion. That it was God's will that made that thing happen, but it was carried out through... Um, through people. And uh, if you want to try and, if, if, if I can give you a one verse of, uh, apologetic for the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, it's right here. He says, what, what you did was designed, what, what was meant to be, God sovereignly planned it, but it was, it was done in, in ignorance for you. Because, look, what it says in, the, in uh, 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that what his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So what he said is that the prophets foretold exactly what you did, which was to put to death the author of life and ask for a murderer instead. That was Barabbas, that's that exchange that happens. And he says, but you did this um, willfully, but you, you did it ignorantly, uh, not knowing that you were actually accomplishing uh, what God had planned anyway. But this doesn't relieve them of culpability because he says right after that, repent. So it's not that uh, because your, your ignorance does not excuse the activity. And uh, we, uh, man, we're famous for this. But if we can, uh, if we can have willful ignorance or plausible, you know, pl what's plausible deniability, is that the, the term we're looking for? We, we like to operate on that uh, more often than not. But it, it, it does not matter. What God foretold by the mouth of all prophets, so this Christ would suffer, he, he did fulfill in their activities. So then he, he invites them to do something. Repent. Therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Um, this is a, an important term. Just sort of underline that in your brain for a minute or highlight it in the Bible, whatever you want to do. Because that, that blotted out um, is really important. We actually read it in uh, that, that uh, Psalm 51 at the beginning of uh, worship there, where it says, you know, cleanse me, wash me clean, blot out my sins. It means to erase, to, to, uh, to eliminate them. And he says that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointing for you, Jesus. 
whom heaven must receive until the restoration of all things about which God spoke, again, by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, what you're seeing here is that Peter's using, now, um, he's, he's done two things. First, he's, he's talked about the God of our fathers, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's Yahweh, you know him, and he, he glorified his servant Jesus. That's one witness against you. This is the testimony of God himself. And then he's going to talk about what the prophets have been said and how they foretold who Jesus would be and what he would do. And so he's using, if you want to say it this way, the word of God as another witness against the people about their lack of recognition of the authority that, um, that, uh, that God has used to try and um, to bring them to recognition of, of their Messiah. So he says, um, there in verse, uh, I'm sorry, 21, whom heaven has received until the time for restoration of all things. God spoke this by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, in 22, um, we're going to get a, another uh, witness, but it's um, one that they respected and were holding to currently as the authority. Okay? So it says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Um, that word for raise up is the same word for resurrect. It's uh, anastasis, which is like to, 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 to give life again. But it also can mean to make prominent, right? So it's, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is what Moses predicted. And you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. This is something they absolutely believe in. If, 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 uh, you know, if God has given us a new prophet beside Moses and we don't listen to what it is that he says, what he commands, then we're, uh, we're eliminated from God's people. This is laid out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Uh, it was accepted as, as a law. And it shall be, uh, uh, excuse me, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. So he's, he's not, there's no law passed here. He's like, look, God said it, uh, Moses predicted it, uh, Christ fulfilled what was foretold about his servant suffering, and then he says, Moses said that there was going to be a prophet, he was raised up, he did give the teachings. And then he says, and then all the prophets, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant, and God that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. But God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So here's what he's, he's effectively done. He, he's laid out his case, if you will, by the witnesses of, that they would have accepted. There's no... Um, repudiation of, of this. There's no, there's no defense for their inability and what they've done. And uh, so he, he's laid out his case and, and the bad news there was that they, they crucified the Messiah that asked for the author of life to be exchanged for the murderer and they put him to death. They acted in ignorance, but he's told them uh, that they could turn back and that their sins may be blotted out. And that, that statement um, that's paramount because he's listen, he's making this statement about their sins being blotted out, erased in the temple, which is the place where this would be like going into Starbucks and saying, you know, you will no longer have coffee from Starbucks or something, and then and then trying to uh, make your pitch for your new coffee shop down the street. This is this is what's happening in this moment. Every, the thing that everybody accepted as the place to go get coffee, he says, we're not, coffee's no longer served here. Okay? And they're like, but we're here right now. There's coffee. I see it. They're making it in the back, right? This is what's happening in the temple at that moment. And, but he, he's trying to make the case 
that without repentance from, from their way of thinking, from how they understand things, their sins will not be blotted out. This is the implication of, of that statement, which is, it, he says it quickly, but it's like a knife in the back, real quick. And it's deadly. Because now they're faced with this problem. If Jesus really is all that you've said, and he and I put, I put him to death, and uh, how did I do that? Well, even if you weren't part of the crowd that asked for Barabbas, he says here um, in 26, God, having raised up a servant, he sent him to you first. That's the, that's the Jews. That was what was predicted, that um, they would be blessed through them, they were the stewards of the prophecies, they were the stewards of the promises, but through them, through their seed, all of the world would be blessed. And he sent Christ to them first to turn every one of you from, and that word wickedness there is actually just the plural word for sins, which is important. Because he's not just, he's, the only, he's not just focused on the problem that they killed the Messiah. That's a pretty bad one, right? But he's actually saying all of your sins are now um, hanging on the balance of whether or not you recognize this truth. Now, um, this is just another, like, for free this morning. Push pause for a second. So, um, I said there's a temple transition happening here. And uh, so, so there's records of, like, what happens in the temple at like, all the time. This is things that's that outside of the Bible. This is extra biblical. So, um, after Jesus is resurrected, remember, the, the curtain is torn in the Holy of Holies, and it's symbolic that uh, the axis has been given. And uh, no longer is God just here in the holy place. He's, he's not in the box. Okay? And uh, so there's records of um, several things happening. Um, but importantly, uh, the, the, the Day of Atonement, the main sacrifice for the sins of the people, there is uh, records of um, the, the, the sacrifice um, not being like, accepted on the altar. And that, uh, that one of the heifers um, turned colors this is like exegetical reading, if you want to read it, during this period of 40 years before the temple is actually done away with. So what's, what's happening in this, uh, in that, in that uh, picture? Well, it's, it's, it's saying that, you know, it's making the case, just like uh, what Hebrews would do eventually, that, that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for your sins. So you either accept that, and you abide with it, or you, or you don't, but there's no longer provisions being made for sin. So, so truly, Starbucks isn't serving coffee anymore. And if you slurp some of their dirty bean water, it's not actually coffee or something like that. I don't, I, I'm stretching the metaphor beyond <laughs> beyond its uh, usefulness. But um, the the reality of what Peter has said here, in the context that it's being said, is uh, is not shy. It takes um, guts. It takes Holy Spirit bravery. And you'll see that that's the case because. If you just cast your eyes down to the next verses of chapter 4, it says what while he's speaking, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, seize upon them, and they're arrested. Mm -hmm. And this thus begins the conflict between the, the, the church and the religious establishment and the kingdom of the world. And um, so, so this morning, um, you, you may feel like, well, I... Uh, you know, I don't really have, I don't have any dog in this fight. I don't really have a problem with Jesus being the way or the sacrifice or, you know, I'm not going to the temple or, or any of those things. And so, um, the, the first thing that uh, I, I want you to, to, to grasp on today is the reality that when Peter gives the good news, he has not said anything 
He has not said a word about eternal life. He didn't say anything about that. He didn't, he didn't give the one thing that I think we use most of all. He didn't actually use hell, uh, which is also another uh, typical tactic of presenting the gospel. But these are important ramifications of, of what we think of when we think about um, our sins, maybe. But he gets right to the heart of it and says, you're guilty. So he gives them, he gives them the good news, but, or excuse me, the bad news, but it makes the, the reality of who Jesus is all the more important, and it makes the good news the good news because of the bad news. Are you, are, do, you, do you see that the contrast has to be there? We can't present half a gospel. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, the fact that it's not just point to the, to the guy that's healed and say, there's the gospel. That wasn't the gospel. In fact, the lame guy doesn't say anything. They don't point, he didn't give his testimony. There's, no, there's nothing really only other than that this man is an example and that he draws a crowd. The gospel, listen, requires word and deed. Mm-hmm. Presentation requires vocalization. But it can't be, you know, we think, well, I'm a silent witness. Stop being silent. Okay? The gospel requires words, it requires articulation. Paul says in Romans, how, how can they believe that they haven't heard, and how can they? Here and listen to the preach, preaches. Okay? And so the gospel requires requires words. Um, and then overall, so you're like, well, I have a problem with the temple, I have a problem with Jesus. So what is problematic is pretending that there are like three groups of people. Mm-hmm. So, so here's, here's the three groups of people that we have in our brains. Us in the church, we're the good guys. We're religious people. We understand the gospel. We don't have any problems. Then there's People who have heard the gospel, but they have problems. And, and they, 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 they really have struggles, and they got stuff going on in their lives, and they really need to hear about Jesus' forgiveness. And then there's everybody else outside of that. All the, the real sinners who haven't heard the gospel yet, or haven't accepted the gospel yet. So the indictment here, though, is total. And, and uh, this, is, this can't be understated, because, um, guys, we're... We're prone to believe we're past the word of the gospel once we understand it. And I, I say this to you, and I'll never get tired of saying it because we don't get tired of ignoring it, apparently. You, you need the gospel as much today as you did the day that you first heard it. By God's grace, hopefully you are maturing and growing, and that the, the Holy Spirit is working in your life, and by God's grace, you're not what you once were, right? But you have not yet arrived. So you still need to understand, I, I'm not the guy that's, that's arrived waiting for everybody else who's struggling to get there. You need to understand that you, you need it just as much now as you did then. So, so we, we don't separate out the groups. It's sinners saved by grace, all in the same pool, and then we're trying to tell the other sinners where grace is found. Instead of being this religious, holy, holier-than-thou kind of people. And I don't think that's necessarily our mentality, but sometimes we do feel like We've arrived, and uh, we just missed the fact that um, to, to do that and to think that way is to, to then start walking in our own strength instead of becoming small and weak as we're supposed to be so that God 